0: How do you do welcome to the third episode of the private citizen your weekly data privacy podcast for Tuesday the 18th of February 2020 my name is Fab and I'm your host hey nice that you're you're along for the ride once again today's episode um, is gonna be about broadly the private sector uh, doing surveillance on behalf of the government, Um, specifically about a story that came out recently uh, that reported that the US government is aggregating smartphone location data and using that. I'm going to discuss how they're using that, why they are using that, and uh, what you can do about it. You might notice that this episode uh, is coming out a bit earlier. That is because I will go on holiday for a bit soon and I'm I'm trying to give you some episodes beforehand because of that promise that I would release one every Wednesday. So uh, if everything goes well, goes according to plan, there will be another episode, The Private Citizen, this week and uh, that is to tidy over um a few days where there won't be one um so just just you know just that you uh, so that you're aware of that um yeah so uh before we get into the main topic uh and talk about this uh mobile location data tracking spying and everything that's going on um i would like to revisit the first episode of the podcast shortly, where I talked about uh, the company Clearview AI. And this was based on reporting by the New York Times. Now, shortly after I released that episode, the New York Times, um, as they are wont to do, um, also uh, made a podcast about this topic um, on their own show, The Daily. Uh, They released an episode where they talked about... um, Clearview AI. And um, just to quickly recap, um, this is a company that scraped the public internet, Facebook, social networks um, for pictures of people. And then uh, it used image recognition. You could, uh, you know, as a police officer, you can upload like a photo of somebody. And then it shows you all of those other images. And of course, links you to all the social media accounts and stuff like that. Now, when I was talking about the story, I, um, which was written by a tech reporter at the New York Times called Kashmir Hill, I was, um, I was talking a little bit about how I felt like how naive that was, the story was written. Like I was, I was amazed that you can be like a tech reporter at a big, big, Prestigious newspaper like the New York Times and just be so incredible that people are scraping the public internet. Now, what struck me when I listened to the episode of The Daily was that, uh, it's one thing to read, um, this reporting and then thinking, my God, this reporter must be really naive. And then, um, actually listening to the reporter, which is the great thing about The Daily, you know, it's a, it's a good, good concept. They get, um, people on who write the stories at the times and then talk about the stories and some of the reporting behind it, which is interesting, especially to me as a journalist. And it's a great concept. <laughs> uh, one could say, uh, we pioneered something like this back in the day. Uh, you know, I came up with colleagues at Heise, uh, quite a while ago now, uh, with, with a, uh, you know, we created a podcast called CT uplink where we did the same thing for CT stories um so it's nice that the new york times has has caught up so i like to listen to that but uh, it also uh gives you a bit of a it gives you a glimpse into what's going on and sometimes this glimpse isn't isn't so good as in this case i just wanted to play uh a few snippets from this daily episode um because i just thought it pertained to what i was discussing uh on episode one so um we have this um, New York Times reporter talking about the story and uh, talking about what happened when. So she was researching this company, and then uh, you know, she, you know, it was kind of hard to get in contact with the company. And meanwhile, she got like contacts from the from the police department that was using the app. So she had the idea, which is a great idea. I mean, I don't want to take away from her reporting; she did great reporting. It's just the analysis uh that came afterwards that is kinda I mean it's it's especially I mean especially incredulous because um if it's dumb reporting as well it wouldn't be such a stark contrast but it's really good reporting and then just the 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 analysis and the uh sorting that into what's actually going on in the world that is so lacking. But anyway, here we have Kashmir Hill talking about what happened when she got these police officers to run her photo um through this app. And yeah, there will be some annoying music. Sorry, that's just like how the daily is produced. I can't really can't really take that out. I'm sorry for that. I apologize in advance.
1: So because officers were telling me the tool works so well, I wanted to see it for myself, on myself. And I asked them...
0: And this is uh, Kashmir Hill, the reporter, talking.
1: ...if they would run my photo through the app. Every time I did this, things would get weird. The officers would tell me that they ran my photo and there were no results. No pictures of you. There were no pictures of me, which was really weird because I have a lot.
0: She's uh, being interviewed by a uh, producer on The Daily, who's also obviously from New York Times.
1: A lot of photos of myself online. And then the officers would just stop responding to me or talking to me. And I had no idea what was going on. Until one officer was kind enough to explain to me. Hello, how are you? Hey, it's Kashmir. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping this officer anonymous.
0: I really like this part of the of the of their podcast. I really liked it, Andy. I listened to it a lot, and um, I like this stuff when they get the people um, talking their own words that the story's about. You know, when they did all the reporting about like that Boeing plant. Um, I think in South Carolina, they had like the actual whistleblower uh, talking and it's, it just gives the, the, the story more color and makes it more believable when you hear the sources. So I, I really like that.
1: Because he could get in serious trouble for talking to me so openly about Clearview. If you could just describe yourself to the extent that you can describe yourself. I'm a police officer in a large metropolitan police department. So he's a cop who was doing a 30-day free trial of the app, and he was really impressed with it, so I asked him if he wouldn't mind running my photo. And what did he tell you happened when he sent your picture through? Yeah, nothing. I didn't get a response at all. No results. Uh, no results. And uh, within a couple of minutes of me you putting your photo up there, maybe five, less than ten, I got a phone call from the... Clearview Company. They wanted to know why I was uploading a New York Times reporter's photo. That is so wild. I don't know. It creeps me out as a reporter. I mean, um, yeah, it just kind of creeps me out as a user. So this implied that Clearview flagged my face in their system, such that they got an alert when a police officer ran my face which I found, you know, very alarming because this is telling me for the first time that this company is able to monitor who law enforcement is looking for and not just know who they're looking for, but manipulate the results.
0: I mean, really? You listen to this and you're like, you're a reporter at the New York Times and you were amazed that this company flagged you? Like, really? I I mean... Wow. If she'd written that in the article, I'd be like, nobody can be so naive, but she's actually saying it and you believe it because you can hear it in her voice, right? And I'm like, so I, <laughs> it's, I just work for like little shitty, like tech publications that nobody cared about. And even when we did like a test of like software, you know, just be it web hosting, we use like fake names to register the stuff or have somebody else register something because we don't want them to like, search us on the web and figure out hey okay this is this is a you know a tech reporter he's probably writing a review of our service let's make sure that he he gets good bandwidth right He like the, the system works for him no we want we want we want to do objective testing as best as we can so we try to get the the service that every other customer gets and i'm thinking about this or my colleagues are thinking about this, like my ex-colleagues at Heise and at other places, they're thinking about this stuff when they're doing, when they're testing, like, web posters, and you're you're messing with, like, a company that does facial recognition for the police, and we were getting into, like, security, intelligence business here, and you're not thinking about that? I mean, what? Ah, ah, Ah! I mean I was like when I did like research into like this uh so I did a story uh about two years back about like this small company uh in Austria slash the UK that was like selling these uh, tracking smartwatches for kids where you could basically, you know, find the location of, of your of your of your kid. And they were there were we, we figured out they weren't secure, right? So I to. You know, to, to be a good, to do good reporting, do good research, you have to get one of these products and you have to test it. Like you can't just believe the security researcher. I mean, he had, they had all this data, uh, but still you can't just believe a security researcher, right? So you have to, you have to, you know, duplicate the results. So we went to all this trouble, you know, getting somebody who wasn't working for the company uh, under, you know, who had a, a, a name that couldn't be connected to the company buying the smartwatch because I didn't want some random one-man company in Austria finding out that I'm, like, pen-testing their smartwatches. And so that they even, I mean, so that, that they could, could foil my tests, of course, but also because, like, these could be used to spy on people, and I didn't want them to spy on me. And and I was very like I I whenever I wasn't testing this thing I I pulled the battery out and kept still without a battery kept the device in a Faraday cage because I didn't want to want the guy you know having like a basically tapped our editorial offices and I'm just like i should a little tech reporter at a publication nobody could, ugh, nobody cares about and the great New York Times. <laughs> they, 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 they're surprised by stuff like this i mean come on
1: and do you ask him about that thing that happened with the officer who couldn't find your photos yeah so that was one of my questions
0: so this is uh further on in the podcast um I, this is again great because they actually have so uh this reporter then went as i talked about I think when I talked about the story went and met Juan Tontat who is like the guy who coded the app. And so at some point she got contacted the company and she met him. And this is great because they actually taped, she taped the interview. And when she talks out in the background, you can hear the guy Juan Tontat talk to her and you can hear, um, his, his reaction to what she says. And now this is how she confronts the guy about this fluke right about well i say fluke but about obviously the company um having flagged her photo and manipulating the search results because they were detecting that the reporter uh was was you know submitting photos here. i mean it's <laughs> that's a, i mean we could get into how like submitting your own photo was a bit of a rookie mistake in the, in the beginning but okay let's you know i can understand how that it's kind of you know you need you need if you do something like this, you need full consent of the person doing it. And maybe, it's, maybe you just can do it for yourself. But um, but this is how uh, Kashmir Hill r- confronts
1: the guy she's writing a story about. And I wasn't entirely satisfied by his answer. So. One thing that surprised me, some of the officers I talked to tried to run my photos through mm-hmm. it, and they got no hits. And I have, like, tons <laughs> of photos online. It must have been a bug. Did you guys block me from, like, getting results? I don't know about that. Because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. He said, oh, yeah, that was a software bug.
0: I mean, that's obviously a lie. And you can hear, I, f- I find it great that they give you this material in the podcast because you can t- do some great analysis. That guy's lying. The way he responds and the way he laughs, I'm going rewind, to rewind this clip and we're going to listen from the beginning. Just listen to the way he laughs and then how his voice sounds when he says, I don't know about that. He has like this kind of vocal fry thing going on. And these are tell, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist or a psychoanalyst and I'm not a specialist for these things, but you know, I've watched my um, share of like investigative technique videos and, you know, read some poker books. So I know, I know a tell when I hear one, just, just listen to that again.
1: And do you ask him about that thing that happened? With the officer who couldn't find your photos? Yeah, so that was one of my questions, and I wasn't entirely satisfied by his answer. One thing that surprised me, some of the officers I talked to tried to run my photos through okay. it, and they got no hits. And I have, like, tons of <laughs> photos online. It must have been a bug. Did you guys block me from, like, getting results? I don't know about that. Because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. He said, oh, yeah, that was a software bug. But he laughed. I was like, I have a thousand photos online. This can't work as well as <laughs> they say it works. Yeah, well, it must have been a bug in the software as oh, well. Why, why did you do that? <laughs> it really made me think that Maybe it doesn't work. <laughs> you never know, right? This could be the long con. I'm kidding, uh, I'm kidding. Okay. It works. So, um, What do you think that was about? <laughs> I don't uh, think it was software. a software bug. It's about it. I don't know. I, 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 you have I no know. idea, huh? Huh. Like, yeah, know. so we said the software bug is now fixed. <laughs> Oh yeah, so I'll show okay. you. this is the iPhone version. And he took a photo of me. Oh, it does work. Oh, that's so surprising. I know. And there the results included a bunch of photos of me online. Oh my god, I totally forgot. Well, that's 10 years ago, including some I had never seen before. I didn't know her online.
0: I mean, he isn't even evading the question, he is lying. And she also detects it. She knows that she's that he's lying. I mean, you can tell from the way she talks about it on on that recording and in the podcast, she knows he's lying. And my issue with this is, why don't you confront him? the, the oh, You were laughing. Ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, yeah, you're lying to me. Ha! <laughs> I know this. This is no not how you do reporting. I mean, you have the guy there. You're talking to him. What you do is you confront him. And you say, when he says, "I yeah, must have been a software bug," you're like, "What kind of bug? How does that work?" And then he'll get he'll start sweating. I mean, because at the moment where even if you're not technically, um, you know, uh, you, you don't have the technical knowledge to catch him in the lie, it just if you keep poking, if you keep asking questions, you have him on tape. So if he gives you a, like a shitty, dumb um, excuse that doesn't hold up, like a technical excuse, you can go to people who know what they're talking about and you can then come back to him and said, listen, you lied to me back when we did this interview. And like why isn't she doing that? I don't get it. And then like, okay, you can if you if you if you go on, um you, you can actually hear that the, the other person on the daily is, is is even more incredulous.
1: And then we hit this point where we got to like ninety nine percent accuracy. I remember that we were just in the office and we was like, Wow it works, try that one again, try that one again and just every time it would pick the right person up and that's when we knew. It. This is crazy. This actually works. Is that legal? Can you just take photographs from anywhere on the Internet and use them for this kind of thing? There was a ruling in a federal court this fall that said, yeah, this kind of public scraping seems to be legal.
0: Hey, is that legal? She literally, like... Of course it's legal. You're literally saying, is that, I mean, you, you could make the point that she's like asking a, the, the, the dumb question in air quotes that, you know, the listener. So somebody who's not informed, right? Who, who doesn't know about this stuff? She's, she's, you could say that she's being a proxy for the audience, right? But in, in this question, she says, is that legal? Can you just scrape pictures off the public internet? She answers the question. Of course that is legal. It's public pictures. Why wouldn't it be legal? How would it be illegal? To to pull a picture, like, if it would be illegal to pull a picture from the internet, we couldn't use the internet. Right? And, yes, I mean, we had some discussions ab- about this. I talked to some people in our, in our Discord channel that you can, by the way, um, that you can become a member of if you support this podcast. More details uh, at the end of the show. But, like, we, we talked about this, and I'm like, yeah. I mean, you know, there have been articles written about how how... Uh, you could defend against this, and how you know Facebook and Twitter have basically said this is against our terms of service. Sure, there, there there are legal arguments against the company using these pictures, right? But like just or selling a service that uses these pictures, there are legal arguments there. But pulling them off the internet, how would that be illegal? And it wouldn't. Is I mean, the only argument you have is a copyright argument, and that's like an argument. Between companies, right? Because, um, I mean, as long as they're just pulling it off, off the internet, I mean, you, if you basically, if, if you use the internet, right? And you go to a website and there is a picture on them, let's say, um, then of course that picture is, is by default copyrighted. It has like in some jurisdictions, like in Germany, there's no other way, like we don't have fair use, right? It is always copyrighted. So let's say you go uh to privatecitizen.press right and you you go to that website and you use you see the album art on there and so technically by going to that website your browser is copying that image it's copying that image and putting that in ram or maybe even on the on the hard drive and technically you've already violated my copyright with that because you're not allowed to just copy that image, but because that's how technology works, we kind of ignore that. But if you now go and like right click and save that image, right? You're not, you're not allowed to use that. You're not allowed to do that. You do not have express permission from me, uh, to copy that image, but like nobody cares because nobody will find out, right? Um, uh, in, in, in Germany, we have a saying, wo kein Kläger, da kein Richter. So where nobody, you know, where there's nobody watching, nobody can sue you, right? Um so as long as this company is not publishing like software how would you how would you even pr- like what ah, what even a question is that anyway that is uh, some of the nice discussions i have uh, with some of the listeners uh, of the show as well i will tell you at the end of the show how how um you can you can be part of that i just wanted to revisit that yeah. because uh, that whole topic because i thought that was that was amazing to me how I, like, you know, I I talked about it on the show and then they've discussed about some of the same stuff on their podcast. And I was like, what is even going on here? I have to talk about that on uh, the next Private Citizen. But um, let's get into the main topic, shall we? I've been, I've been waffling about this uh, for way too long. Just let me have a sip of nice Earl Grey here before I get into that. So we are talking about... um. As I titled it, the private sector's private sector surveillance bleeding into government, um, and this is based on a um, Wall Street Journal article, uh, which was published at the beginning of February, called "Federal Agencies Use Cell Phone Location Data for Immigration Enforcement," and they basically did some original uh, reporting, which is quite um, well wa- valuable, where they show that the u s. government is buying data from companies that uh, location data that you know is collecting this data for advertising purposes and um let me just uh read some of that story so the Wall Street journal writes. The Trump administration has bought access to a commercial database that maps the movements of millions of cell phones in America and is using it for immigration and border enforcement, according to people familiar with the matter and documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The location data is drawn from ordinary cell phone apps, including those for games, weather, and e-commerce, for which the user has granted permission to lock the phone's location. Well that's what's going on. By the way, notice how it's the Trump administration, right? And when it's something evil these days, it's always the Trump administration. It's not the government. It's not your <laughs> your legally elected officials. No, it's the Trump administration. I also love like the the bent they have about I mean we have to this is the obvious like clickbait line they're taking Trump and immigration and the baddies. I mean this is why they're bending this to to this, I, I guess this is why they did all this research in the first place. They're not so much interested in privacy and apps. It's more about, oh, the customs and border patrol, the evil guys from ICE hunting down these immigrants. Um, which, which just a small political aside. Please permit me this for a second here. Um, which is always brought back to Trump, which is hilarious because, uh, I mean, George W. Bush founded all this, Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border uh, Enforcement, you know, the the Border Patrol as, as it is today. They founded ICE. Um, Obama didn't curtail any of this uh, by any means. If you look into Obama's two uh, terms in office, you can see, uh, on the contrary, that expa- he expanded this whole system. Uh, but now it's all down to Trump, of course. but uh yes let's let's just ignore this political bandit. just you know ignore the uh, i mean the the department as 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 the uh wsj says here uh the department of homeland security has used information to detect undocumented immigrants and others who may be entering the u.s unlawfully according to these people and documents i mean the (laughs) the operating uh word is in the sentence unlawfully i mean that's their job, the federal government's use of such data for law enforcement purposes hasn't previously been reported. So this is a new thing. I mean, if you know anything about IT security and privacy, um, you know, I've been writing about this for almost a decade now, um, you know that you strongly suspected slash were virtually certain that this is going on. But as with the Snowden revelations, this kind of stuff is really helpful because we need reporting, and this is excellent reporting. Um, we need actually proof that this is happening so we can, you know, point at it. And uh, and I find it good that they explain this. Um, I find this whole immigrant angle a bit stupid because you're reading this and it's all slanted towards current US politics and Trump and all of that, and Trump evil, orange man bad, Trump administration, the poor immigrants, and you're like, hmm, well, first of all, it is illegal immigrants by definition illegal. So what they're doing is actually their job. Um But that's just like putting a slant on the whole uh, problem that makes it more benign in my mind. Because if you're a U.S. citizen, you're reading this, and maybe you're you're a bit conservative. You're like, ah, they're illegals so anyway, you know. But the point is that the government is doing this, and they'll be doing this about you know about anybody. Like they'll they'll be doing this with the data of of. The everyday Joe Schmo, U.S. citizen, pretty much. And the same thing for us outside of the U.S. Um, I don't agree with people who wave this off. Yeah, it's the Americans doing this. I mean, this is, they're just ahead of us. Like, if you live in Germany, it's, it's a pattern that I've been seeing for the last 20 years that is obvious that stuff that is happening in the U.S., it takes like four or five. It's like Facebook, right? It takes like four or five years. Then it arrives in Germany. And The same thing with this kind of espionage. Now, um the story goes on. Experts say the information amounts to one of the largest known troves of bulk data being deployed by law enforcement in the US. And that use appears to be on firm legal footing because the government buys access to it from a commercial vendor, just as a private private company could, though though its use hasn't been tested in court. And this is important. Uh, quote This is a classic situation. Where creeping commercial surveillance in the private sector is now bleeding directly over into government, said Alan Butler, general counsel of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, think tank that pushes for stronger privacy laws. And this is, um, something that's been a cornerstone of the show. And I guess will be as long as the show goes on. Um, from the first episode, I've kind of pointed out that there's this worrying pattern of like tech companies often like from Silicon Valley who start off and they actually think they're doing something good. And then by going into business and getting investors and the investors wanting return on their investment and all this stuff, getting involved with the evils of capitalism, uh, some people would say, it just happens that these good uh, intentions go overboard. And what they actually figure out they're building in the end it's like basically a surveillance structure. And it's very interesting that here, um, this, this is, this is a very good example of this. So, um, according to federal spending contracts, a division of DHS, that's Department of Homeland Security, that creates experimental products began buying location data in 2017 from Ventel Incorporated of Herndon, Virginia. It's all those. You can already tell it's a spook outfit, right? It's in Virginia. Uh, a phone in Virginia, small company that shares several executives and patents with gravy analytics, a major player in the mobile advertising world. Contracting records show the federal government is buying the location data from Vantel. Vantel, in turn, purchased the information from private marketing companies that sell the location data of millions of cell phone ad- to advertisers, people familiar with the matter say. So basically these companies that, um, What happens here, you have a cell phone app, it's a game, or weather app, or whatever, and for legitimate or not so legitimate reasons, it asks for your location data, you enable that, and now the app knows where you are at all times, or you know, with the iPhones a bit harder, and I guess with modern Android phones as well, but it knows a lot about your location. And then, you know, this data is sold by this app, because often, especially on Android, these apps are free, and they want to make money somehow. Um... And, like just banner ads don't pay for for anything um so they sell this location data, and then nothing stops you know ad- advertisers use that to to give you targeted advertisements and de- depending on um what your stance against this, it's good or bad or whatever, but like other companies can buy this as well, so the spook outfit buys it and basically makes an intelligent security law enforcement product out of it and sells. The data on, probably with a good premium, but if you read the story and make kind of a lot of money and sells it to the government. Continuing in the story, the data is pseudonymized, meaning that each cell phone is represented by an alphanumeric advertising identifier that isn't linked to the name of the cell phone's owner. Cell phone users can change their identifier in their phone settings menu or limit the apps that have access to their location marketing data is widely used by the government to gather intelligence abroad I say people familiar with the matter so you know spying on me uh, as 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 it would be here in germany but those contracts are frequently classified so so the extent to which intelligence agencies are buying such data cannot be determined and um this is the 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 the, the pseudo pseudonomi- pseudono- pseudonymized i don't know pseudonymized uh thing is just in this case it's it's bullshit i mean that is a valid method to basically divorce data from the person it's coming from um i mean an- anonymous would be if nobody can tell anonymous is if you change, like, if nobody can tell initially. So I do this if you have, if you can tell by the data, and then you try to strip that identifying information out. Now, the problem with this is, depending on the data, this this works or it doesn't work. And it tends to, we figured out with, like, what people call AI, which is just number crunching, basically, with fancy algorithms and you know big data, which literally is just number crunching, um, you know, in the cloud, with lots of computers, with with relatively smart in air quotes algorithms, figured out that the more data you have, at some point this you can de-anonymize this data. Like even with actual an, an anonymous data, you can actually with meta metadata and stuff, you can you can you can try to actually find people and you can and the problem with location data is if you read this Wall Street journal story they're like oh they're they're pointing out that uh there's new research and um, later i'm going to quote a new york times story where they're also like oh last year we found out that location data cannot be so anonymized anonymized wow what a word damn it <laughs> um the only thing that helps there is more i agree let me quote Captain Picard from a recent episode of Star Trek Picard. oh gray always helps um yeah, so basically they there, you know the great New York Times is kind of like oh yeah we we have this groundbreaking reporting. We found out that you can actually tell from location data who it is, and this this is something that people who who know about this stuff um have known for like years. Probably decades. I mean it's location data is just by its very nature. You can often very easily figure out who it belongs to, like, right? you know, for especially smartphone. I mean the smartphone's in your pocket all day, so so it's like you get like location data and it lies somewhere from from the middle of the night till eight in the morning, then it moves to a place, then it stays there from nine till five in the afternoon, then it moves somewhere else and goes back to the first place and stays there overnight. So what can you get by that data? You know where the person lives and where the person works. And from that alone, often you can figure out who it is. I mean, I've, I've done research and I've, I've worked with colleagues, uh, doing research where we had data. Lakes, um of of this kind of data, uh, or we just did experimental stop you know storytelling with our own data and just tried to figure out who the person was, and we did it ourselves, right, with some elbow grease and some some good old fashioned legwork. You can you know figure out who the person is as like a dumb, stupid tech reporter. And now imagine like people like the NSA who have computers. I mean, they just push a button and they know. Oh. That's, that's Fabian Scherschel there because he lives there and he works there and he does that and he stays all day at home because he does podcasts and writing and streaming all day. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you can't anonymize this data. Now, interestingly, here's an, another point in the story. Um, just very quickly, but they talk about why, why the U.S. government uses this kind of data. And basically in 2018, there was a Supreme Court uh what the uh Wall Street Journal calls a landmark ruling uh, it's, it's a case called Carpenter versus the United States also known as Carpenter where uh, the judge basically said no we we will not allow the government to use um especially not without a warrant um to use location like cell tower location data that this i mean this is a typical uh, way for like a Intelligence agency or the government like to track your smartphone, right? They just go to the cell phone provider and they can give you real time, very, very, very granular location data. Now, the thing is, what we figure out here, if you, if you disallow this, the, the thing the government does is just to get this data from the apps, which isn't as real time and isn't as granular, but it turns out it's good enough for a lot of things. Um, so, They're saying, but but the federal – this is uh, Wall Street Journal again – but the federal government has essentially found a workaround for this can't-use cell tower data uh, by purchasing location data used by marketing firms rather than going to court on a case-by-case basis because location data is available through numerous commercial exchanges – Government lawyers have approved the programs and concluded that the Carpenter ruling doesn't apply. Quote, in this case, the government is a commercial purchaser like anybody else. Carpenter is not relevant, said Paul Rosenzweig, a former DHS official who is a resident fellow at the R Street Institute, a conservative and libertarian think tank that promotes free markets. Quote, the government is just buying a widget. This is another case of me like, why didn't you ask God? Well, like what kind of a, like if somebody gives you a stupid answer like this, why don't you just like ask them and just nail him as like a widget? Do you not even know what a widget is? Did you did you did realize that you what you just said is bullshit, right? <laughs> but anyway, enough media analysis. So basically, uh judges said can't use location data from South, also now the government just goes to apps. Great. Um of course, we, we've known this. We know this was going on, but it's nice that it's been reported. Um, so, what can we take away from this? Uh, I think the implications are pretty clear. Um, so, you have all these apps, uh, people give it permission, they don't realize what, what other people might be able to do with this data, how it can be combined, and Now it's clearly being used for surveillance by both companies, government agencies, you know, from local police forces to intelligence services, which also have other data. You know, they probably have the cell phone, cell tower data as well. But you know, more the more data, the better, the easier it is to identify people, etc., etc. Also, you can get maybe other data from those apps that they're selling. You know, these advertising um, companies—they not only sell where people are. You know, they also sell what apps they use and, you know, what, what they do in the app, um, what kind of stuff they visit on the web, maybe. Um, so, and as we know, you know, this location data is very easy to identify people. Um, so the question is that's been mostly raised with respect to this is, how should we legislate against this? So there, there was an opinion piece, I referred to this in New York Times, um, where they talk about, they actually quote this uh, Supreme Court judge, John Roberts, uh, who said in his ruling, when the government tracks the location of a cell phone, it achieves near perfect surveillance as if it had attached an ankle monitor to the phone's user. We declined to grant the state unrestricted access to wireless carriers' database of physical location information because of this this reason and now obviously the companies are just going around that so they're basically calling the new york times in this opinion piece is calling for legislation but they say themselves and i quote the new york times the courts co- the courts are a ponderous and imperfect venue for protecting fourth amendment rights in an age of rapid rapid technological advancement Exhibit A is the notion that the carpenter ruling applies only to location data captured by cell phone towers and not to location data streamed from smartphone apps, which can, you pro- which can produce nearly identical troves of information. And that is a perfect point. They are completely right on this. That, <laughs> it makes no sense that the government can use that information, but not that information. Which, you know, to basically the same result. But they go on. For far, far too long, lawmakers have neglected their critical role in overseeing how these technologies are used. Surely Congress has time to hold hearings about a matter of urgent concern to everyone who owns a smartphone or cares about the government using the most invasive corporate surveillance system ever devised against its own people. Yeah, sure. But the problem is here, you, 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 you're basically defeating your own argument because what you're basically saying is that I mean, the the main problem here is that courts are reactive and they can't keep up with technology. And as this case clearly shows, can be outmaneuvered with technology because you have a court ruling and then the companies just, you know, a few months later, just get the data from somewhere else and that's completely legal. To be clear, I'm not arguing against legislation, Uh, but I'm mostly concerned with... You know, as I said when I started this podcast, um I'm mostly concerned with the practical you know practical implications for everyday people like you and me. and my question is, what can we do to protect ourselves and um maybe we don't want, we don't want to wait for court ruling, and uh you know in the meantime, then stuff is legal, and we get spied on. so what can we do? I think the only way uh, that helps us here, the only way we can protect ourselves, is to basically do it ourselves. Um, we need to become aware about what how what data we we create and put out there and how much. And there's a nice German word for this, uh, which is as as all German ver- words very long and cumbersome, but I still like it anyway. Um, it is datensparsamkeit. And uh, it's a word that the Chaos Computer Club loves and has probably even created and uses a lot. But um, it's great. So datensparsamkeit basically could be translated as data thrift. Uh, so basically think about... only Only create the data in the world that is necessary because in the end all data will be used against you. How does this apply to smartphone apps? Well... There are, I mean, this might sound to people who are technically, um, savvy. This might sound like just like common sense, but still, I mean, I'm aiming this podcast at, at people who might not be that technically savvy and I'm trying to help people here. And even if you're technically savvy, it makes sense to, to think about these things once again. So there, there are a few steps you could take. Um, first of all, you should be aware of what apps you use. And if you actually need to use them, we, all of us, I'm no exception, all of us, we see the hot new app, we download an app, we install all these apps. Um, They're all on our phone. We all give them certain kinds of permissions. Maybe we don't think about it that much. And then we we have all these apps and they're basically all tracking us. And the only way to minimize this the only good way is the first step is to minimize what apps we use. So think about what apps do you use? Why do you use it? Do you really use to use? Do you really need the Facebook app on your phone? Can you maybe, can you maybe just use Facebook from the desktop, for example? What about Instagram then? WhatsApp, you know, stuff like that. Um, think about which permissions you give an app and why. Uh, I mean, the iPhone is great because it, it created this. This idea of not asking you all of... I mean, Android's, Android was actually the first operating system to have the idea of asking you what permissions you want to give. That was great. Then the iPhone innovated on it and basically asked you at the moment. It didn't give you a list at the beginning where you just want the app and don't think about it. It asks you when the app uses the permission for the first time. Like if it wants access to your camera, it asks you then. And that's actually quite handy because then you have... It's, it's a better context for thinking about it. But still, even then, you know, you need to think about these things. And Android, of course, does this now as well. So you should actually think about why does this app need this permission? Does a flashlight app need to know my location? Probably not. And, you know, decide against using it, maybe. Because now you know that this government is doing this shit. Um, turn off features that you don't actually need. Like a good example is location tagging. Do you need location tagging on fo- photos? It can be a feature that's great, but on the other hand, every t- every way you upload this photo then has like the location tag on it, right? Do you need Twitter to know your exact location? Is that is that actually do you need that? You know, think about stuff like that, and just generally be aware that this data collection is going on. Be aware that this is happening, and. What what companies and and government agencies do with it, and to make it make clear once again, I'm not saying we do not need any laws, um, you know, to prevent governments and companies to do this. I think we do need them, and you know, for we do have we do have a bit better protection against stuff like this in 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 Europe than than there are in the US. But still, I I think it's 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 more important first. That we need to develop a feeling for ourselves of what's going on and what data we create and where where it's being put and what what's happening to it. That is the first step. Then we concentrate on lo- legislation because it's it seems weird um to be pushing for legislation without first having an understanding what's going on and also changing your safe, same behavior at the same time. Otherwise, it strikes me it strikes me to be a bit like hypocritical, right? We are like. It's like that was that that dilemma of privacy where people are, like online often lament that they don't have any privacy, but then continue use services that actively take their privacy away, right? You need to be aware, aware of these things and think about these things. And you're not perfect. Like you won't be, as I said in the beginning of the show, and this is an important point, um you won't be eliminating all of this data. And I won't be eliminating all of this data, but we can at least like eliminate some of it. And think about it, I think that's a that's an important thing to do anyway i've I've been going a bit uh faster sorry uh, i've just trying to get through this topic because I still have some feedback to talk about um so that's it for the main topic i thought uh this was this was interesting something we should we should be aware of, and if you have thoughts about this, please. Write to me. Tell me about it. And I had some people, uh, telling me, giving me feedback about uh, the first two episodes. So first off, with regards to episode number one, uh, the Clearview AI, I had a very nice uh, discussion with uh, Patreon supporter Ricky M, um, about generally AI facial recognition and the ethics behind it. And I recommended to him and I want to actually tell everybody about this. So this year at FOSDEM, uh, the open source conference, FOSDEM 2020. There was a great talk, uh, about the freedoms of AI. And basically this was, uh, two researchers, two privacy researchers. Um, kind of sorry. I'm, I was hitting my, uh, my pop shield for the microphone there. Um. Cause I'm, I'm agitated and I'm moving my hands around. <laughs> uh, so they had a, they had a great talk about the three freedoms of AI, which basically they're postulating to have something like the, like Stallman's four freedoms of, uh, free software, but just for AI and not for freedom of software, but for like your data, basically, um, and your decision-making towards AI and how we can influence that. It's a great talk. Uh, I can only recommend it. I wrote it up. Actually, I wrote it up for Heiser Online. And uh, there's a link in the show notes at uh, privatecitizen.press. Also, another Patreon supporter, Butterbeans, um, referenced episode number two, which is the, the most recent episode about uh, electronic voting. And he said, I think your point about paper ballots is valid. But what are your thoughts about an open voting platform? Steve Gibson talks about it regularly on Security Now. And I know Microsoft has been developing an election guard for this purpose. Do you think it's realistic that code like this could allow for transparent and auditable electronic voting on a mass scale, or should we not even bother trying? Is the risk of undermining the democratic process from poor implementation of of a digital voting system in any form too high? Um, I wanted to address this uh, quickly. I think Butterbean, you're basically answering your own question with the last, uh, with the, with the last questions there. Yes, I think it is. Um, I think the, it's just why, I mean, there is paper ballots work and there's no reason but a bit of convenience gain for everybody to stop using them. And if we just accept that the voting and our democracy is just something that isn't convenient and something that we all have to work for then there's basically no reason not to use paper ballots oh, to um address i actually security now i've listened to that for a long time it was the second podcast i ever listened to haven't listened in a while basically because i write about security and i was being annoyed by the fact that I'd already written about the, all these stories that we're talking about and already know, knew all about it, and it was basically redundant. But I, ha- I have meant to go back to it and listen to it again, Again, so I should probably do that. Uh, but uh about Steve Gibson talking about open source. Now, the problem is open source is often held up as a great security feature, and it is a good security feature. But the problem here is it is open source software in a given... Any given software is probably more secure if it's open source than it's closed to proprietary, and this is down to Linus's law, right? So Linus Torvalds, the founder of Linux, has this has this uh, saying that says, "Given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow." Now, the problem that people then often fail to ask is. The question this begs is, do we have enough eyeballs? Because as, as the Linux kernel, for example, itself proves there are very serious bugs in the Linux kernel all the time. There's no question that it's more secure than if, when it, if it would be proprietary, there would be even even more bugs. But there are still bugs. And there are bugs being found in code that's 20 years old. That's just They haven't been found. So often, we just don't have enough eyeballs. That's the simple question. And the question here is that you have to ask yourself is not um, if open source software might be secure. The question is, is it secure enough? And I think for a lot of software, yes, it is. And open source can be a great security feature. I think it's a problem equating open source with security because if you have nobody looking at the code, it is not more secure. I mean, proprietary software might be more secure than some open source software because there's just a company behind it and they have a lot of people looking at the code internally and the open source software might just be one guy or not enough people looking at it. So it doesn't mean itself open source. But I mean, the question here is just, if our democracy and our way of life is at stake, is it secure enough? And I just don't think so. Not, like if the if the choice was between using uh open source software and not voting, yes, or using software and not voting, yes, use the software, but that's not the choice. The choice is between a hundred a, a system that we know works for hundreds of years and another system. so why not use that system that that we know works because that's another see I mean an even more important tenant in in security, I personally think than is it open source or not is has it been proven? You can never say a system is secure from the outset. The security is, is not, first of all, it's not absolute. It's a measure, um, a measure that develops the longer the software is around and the more it's being used and the more eyes, more eyeballs look at the code, the more secure it is. And we just have good experience with paper voting. I mean, we know where the flaws are. There are flaws. We know where they are. It's just, a uh, you know even at, even if you think about it like in uh, in academic terms of of IT security um paper voting is a is a is a tr- tried and true system so i just think you know why 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 change it if it works um fadi mansour wrote a nice email basically saying he's looking forward to more episodes so here you go there should be two this week fadi i hope you enjoy them uh please keep writing me about them um if you have input. Uh Steve Hose, I hope say this right, says My God, man, I must love you. You're at least fifty percent of my Patreon spending a month. Try to compare Patreon to Netflix, but but it falls but it falls down. Sorry, he wrote two but two f- falls down. I think he means it falls down. Anyhow, uh, I'm from the old I'm from the LO days, so that's the Link's Outlaws podcast I used to do. Back in the dim past. And I've been missing the morning piss. I mean, uh, the morning stream. Morning stream. Uh, good to see you're back at it. I know you just need to pay the bills like normal people do. I hope this goes well for you. Thank you. Um, yes, that's basically it. Thanks for supporting me, um, uh, supporting the Patreon. That, that's what it is. I'm trying to pay the bills here. And, uh, the more people support the show, the more time I can spend on it, which I think is fair, isn't it? I mean, I produce a lot of free content for everybody. Can't, can hardly complain. Um, and then I just wanted to point out, uh, even though I mentioned on the first episode, on the very first episode, that the site isn't using SSL or TLS, whatever you want to call it, it's not being served over HTTPS. Please don't write to me about it because I explained why. Um, it's not just one server that's involved. There is a combination of servers. It's not that easy. Um please have some understanding. I'm going to migrate it. It's just going to take some time. I explained all of that of course somebody wrote to me without listening to the show first and told me a little bit snarkily, "Hey, your site is not working on https." And the thing is, dude, I'm going to I I think I've I've pretty much resolved about uh, doing a show about this at some point. Um Probably in the uh maybe soon. Um basically explaining how this site works and also like this is one of the like TLS and privacy is some is, is one of these um misunderstood things. It's a bit like open source and security. It's like people just assume things are sec- more secure slash more private if you use TLS. Yes, TLS has a very important security, and very important privacy features. But that always also depends on what you're doing. Like, if you have a site like this, which is a static site, has no logins whatsoever, there's no data being submitted from your browser back to the site, Um the only privacy... uh I mean, it gives you a privacy protection because if everything's well implemented and the rest of the web works, then people don't basically see what ca- content you're pulling from my site and what site you're going to uh, which might or might what not work depending on things but uh, without going into that that's yes so you don't have people seeing that you go to private dot press but on the other hand you know people who complain about this are like oh your site's not being served over tls you know you go to websites where their contents on and they're serving their site over HTTPS, but then there's like Facebook widgets and Twitter widgets linked in there, and then you're like, "Great, congratulations! Your privacy invasion is happening over a secure connection." And you no, know, from a privacy standpoint, I think that's much worse. Uh, but I'll I'll get into that into your show. So please, I'm gonna address this both on the server. I'm working on this. It's just gonna it's gonna take some time. Um Until then, you will have to get everything of an HTTP connection. Or use Tor, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, if you're that privacy conscious, it'll work over Tor. The podcast will download a bit slower, but, you know, these days it'll... Tor's quite good. It, it works quite well. And with that, there's only one thing I can I can say. I've given this a new title in the show notes. I call this a Toss-A-Coin to Your Podcaster. Um please uh if you if you like this show um it's being produced under the value for value model, which basically means if it's worth something to you, I ask that you just you know keep that in mind and if you if you wanna toss me a coin, uh, you can become a patron uh there's a link to Patreon uh on the site. Of course, that has its own privacy implications. So I understand if you want to be completely private, the show's got the private citizen. If you want to be completely private, I can live with the, with the hit from not getting any money. But, you know, people helping me out helps, helps me produce the show, helps me put, put more energy into the show. And I think that's good for everybody. Um, and. Before I would mention that, I wanted to mention, speaking of feedback, I kind of skipped over that. You can, of course, contact me. There's a link in the show notes, a private uh to my contact uh, information, which is on my personal blog at fab.industries, which is a site, because it's not serving any audio files, which you can reach over HTTPS um <laughs> because it's just a much easier setup uh, anyway um, you can go there um contact me there's email uh, addresses on there you can find me on twitter and on the fediverse and you know just tell me what you think um this show lives from your feedback and i i think i'll I'm, you know i'm trying to address uh, people's complaints uh and also input other input fairly um I hope I've, I've shown that. Anyway, so that, that's it. Uh, private citizen.press has everything on it, copious show notes, links to all the material I talk about. Uh, so in this case, to all the stories I talked about, to the daily episodes, so you can listen to the whole thing if you want. Um, it's all on them. And of course, also linked to, uh, becoming a patron where you can then, as a little bonus, uh, we have a private Discord server that you can join if you want. Um, I'm not paid. I don't want Patreon to be just for that. I really want people to just give me money because they think the show's worth something to them. But as a little bonus, you get that, uh, Discord server. You get another way of like basically contacting me in real time and just talking to me in real time. I thought that's, that's worth as a little incentive. And with that, uh, let's, let's thank everybody. Uh, let's thank all my patrons. And also I would like to thank, uh, Raul. Kabizali, who made the great music uh, for this podcast, which people seem to love. Uh, I had somebody specifically, uh, because I had uh, on um, you know on an on an old podcast um, RSS feed, I'd, I'd recorded a message saying this podcast uh, is discontinued. Maybe you want to listen to The Private Citizen. And as a musical bad, I'd used the theme for this show, and he was like, oh, where can I get that song? So uh, I, I pointed him to the show notes here. Uh, so Raul uh, Cabezali, a song called uh, Acoustic Roots, which I've licensed for the show because I like it very much. And I think it's cool that you also like it. And I also would like to thank Bytemark, um, who um very graciously provides me with that server that I have to convert to HTTPS at some point where all the audio files are on, Um which is otherwise I couldn't, like, you know, Distributing these audio files, even though this is a new show and doesn't have that much many listeners yet. It's already, I pretty much feel eclipsing all the money I'm pulling in with, with Patreon. Um, so I'm very grateful to ByteMark. Uh, they are at ByteMark.co.uk and a great UK hosting company. Um, I know some of the guys personally and I love them. Um, and with that, uh, the only thing that's left for me is to thank my patrons, the people who support the show, who toss the coin to their podcaster. Toss a coin to your podcaster, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty. Oh, yeah, stop singing. <laughs> I only stop singing if you toss me a Um So thank you, Niall Donegan, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jonathan M. Heavy, jo- George Swalfer, Dave Kaysiers, Matt Jellyman, Fadi Mansour, Joe Poser, Mark Holland, Steve Hose, Butterbeans, Shelby Kruver, Dave Amrish, Ricky M and Drive Zero. Thank all of you for helping me out and uh, supporting this show. And I'll be, if everything goes, if everything goes according to plan, uh, I will be back with another episode here pretty soon and then i'll take a little little hiatus um while i enjoy some holidays but fear not i'll be back and uh until then stay free stay private and don't let the bloody government and their cell phone location data gobbling agencies catch you